to the Event Manager podcast. The title of this episode is The Sweet Spot for Interactivity at Virtual Events. My name is Miguel Neves and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of EventMB. And on this episode, I'm joined by Oriel Hav, the Vice President Client Operations at Kennis Group and the President of IAPCO. We talk about why conferences need to think and act as brands. We talk about the reasons behind developing your own virtual event solution. We talk about some of the surprising challenges of virtual events. We talk about the advantages and disadvantages of different hybrid event models. We also talk about how event professionals need to be experts in on-demand content, in addition to all the other things they already need to be experts on. And we also talk about why harmonizing travel policies is really needed at this point to restart international in-person events. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Event Manager podcast, and please follow, subscribe, and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And now for a word from our sponsors, PHL Life Sciences, a division of the Philadelphia Convention and Visitors Bureau. Host your convention or trade show in Philadelphia, one of America's leading life sciences hubs. PHL Life Sciences, the first and only CVB division of its kind, will connect you to the professionals at the forefront of your industry and to a culture you can only find in Philadelphia. A city known for its rich history that's forging a bright future, Philadelphia challenges the expected and defies convention. A world of discovery is waiting. Visit phllife.com to learn more. Welcome, everyone. I'm uh, delighted to have Ori Lahav on the show with us today. Ori is the um, Vice President of Client Operations at Kenneth Group. Ori, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Mikhail. Thank you for having me. You're really welcome. Ori, um, I mean, we've met uh, quite a few years ago. I know a lot about your work, but for anybody who's not familiar with you and what you do, could you give us a short kind of introduction to your, you know, how did you arrive in this crazy world of events and what are you doing right now? It's funny you say crazy world, but it is. Um, actually, I wasn't born to the meeting industry. I've um, joined Kenneth Group a little bit more than eight years ago. My background is a little bit different. I uh, am a marketing person. I work for diff in different uh, um, industries, work a lot of in the telecom industry, uh, work in the automotive industry. And just before um, joining Kenneth, I worked for a startup called Better Place that has raised $900 million uh, in building an infrastructure to charge electric cars. I, I owned an electric cars more than, more than 10 years ago, and a bit, you know, I'm a big fan of electric cars and technology. Um, but at a certain point, the startup uh, was sold in parts, unfortunately. And um, you know, I got a call from a friend saying, listen, this company, he didn't even know the name, are looking for a VP marketing. And they're interviewing somebody that um, uh, you manage in the past and they want your reference. And I said, hold on, but you know, we're, we're, over, you know, we're gonna be out of business in a few weeks. Uh, maybe I'm interested in the position. He said, wow, I didn't even think about it. Sorry, give me two minutes, let me check. And four interviews afterwards, I started working for Kenneth, which uh, it was my, you know, my first introduction to the uh, business meeting and uh, meeting industry which is fascinating. I got hooked very quickly. Um, so for four years, I run uh, Kenneth Marketing, which is a subsidiary of Kenneth Group that uh, uh, deals with marketing and promotion of, of events. 
And uh, after four years, I uh, moved to manage the client management and operation and IT departments in Kenes. Um, and started to be also involved in the industry. I joined IAPCO, the International Association of Professional Congress Organizers, the council member a few years ago, and currently the president of the association. Excellent. Thank you for sharing that with us. And just out of curiosity, I mean, being a marketing person originally, when you look at marketing in the event industry, what do you see compared to the wider world of marketing? Yeah, it's a different world, uh, event and marketing promotion. I mean, let's say the, the essence, the basics of marketing is, is more or less the same. If you know how to market a, a mobile phone, if you know how to market an electric car, uh, the basics are the same if you want to promote uh, a meeting. It also has obviously with, with the brand and, and fighting for awareness, right? Uh, you know, our mission is, as marketers is always being in the top of mind when it comes to the uh, potential client for us as a potential delegates virtual or in person in the past it was the you know the majority was in person and um and then building on the brands and i see all the conferences the association events the corporate events are brands and they need to think as brand and to act as brands um and then when you build the right strategy uh the skies are the limit um, and of course i've been involved with with you know in the past with big big budget doing TV commercials, radio commercials at that time, uh, a lot of digital. Of course, the, um, the scope is different. I mean, the budgets are obviously different than, than huge corporate brands, but it actually, it's more interesting and more challenging uh, what you can do with smaller amount and, and having a, a smart and effective way of promoting, especially using all the digital tools, not only social media, but you know, online advertising, uh, but also classical tools like word of mouth and, uh, you know, email marketing and so forth. So I think it's, it's actually sometimes more challenging, but more interesting uh, with, with limited amounts of what you can do uh, promoting an event. Thank you. I think that's, that's really interesting. I'm always fascinated in terms of event marketing compared to other marketing. It, it always feels like it's, um, it's a slightly different game, but... The principles are the same, right? So, and it's like, and, and do you have anywhere particularly that you find inspiration to bring into uh, event marketing? Yeah, no, I follow what everybody follows, like the Ted and Simon Simic is also, uh, you know, a person I follow, I hear a lot. Although he speaks about management, you can learn about a lot about brands and, and brand management and, and growth through that. Um, you know, hear a lot of podcasts, <laughs> that's always a good, you know, when you commute to, to the office. Um, yeah, you know, there's so much knowledge out there in the internet, you know, so it's easy to find. Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, your journey and Kenneth's journey over the last 18, 19 months. It's obviously been a, a challenging uh, time. Could you talk us a little bit through, you know, how you pivoted or what you did when, when you know, when the pandemic really closed down events in, in March of last year and, and how that's developed since then? Yeah, well, it's, uh, you know, it seems like years ago already. But yeah, I mean, uh, uh, you know, we were one of the first companies to pivot a, a full event to virtual. It was the first week of April uh, and um, it was one of the conferences that was uh, planned to be in Vienna. 
Uh, and three weeks beforehand, we realized it, it cannot happen. And we were debating if to uh, postpone or to cancel. And I'm happy that we've decided to pivot to virtual. And, um, you know, with, we have, we are lucky to have a strong IT company, you know, a department in-house. So using, of course, the beginning th uh, third-party providers helping us with, with platform, uh, but doing all the recording ourselves. And in three weeks, we found ourselves recording 250 speakers, uh, doing live session, doing a virtual exhibition, and it, it was just amazing. Um, and this is how we, let's say, uh, acted more or less um, let's say Q2-3 of uh, 2020, when we realized very quickly that um, we don't want to be dependent on the third-party providers and we want to build our own solution because we saw, you know, we realized it will take time. We need it. It's a good opportunity to accelerate whatever we dreamt about maybe a few years ago when we only spoke about it. And so we have developed our own virtuals, what we call our own virtual platform. Um, in-house and it was launched uh, last November. And I think we've done over 40 or 50 events already on this platform, very successful. And, um, and we have developed it um, in sprint, what I call. So we, every week we sit together, every week, it's still till today. And we say, okay, what's missing? What are client, you know, feedbacks from our client? Um, what do we see even in other platform? And uh, what is still missing and we develop and, and very quickly, within a week, we launch a new version. Every week, we launch a, a new version. Sometimes it's, it's small uh, features, uh, you know, but back then it was, okay, uh, you know, I need the uh, bookmarks, so I can want to add a session to my agenda. Okay, let's add it. That's simple. We want matchmaking solution. That's a little bit more complicated. Let's say AI, machine learning that uh, recommends people for you to connect. So we uh, took um, um, a local startup that developed this for us. It's in the build as an add-on on our platform. And it developed and developed, and I think we have a very good and steady solution. I think that uh, one of our pick was last April that we have uh, ran the AN, the American uh, Academy of Neurology event on this platform, uh, which is a huge event with uh, was 16,000 people with 2,500 speakers, thousands of, of, of posters. And of course, all our association, all core uh, PCR clients are running on this platform. Um, yeah, so we're, we're very happy in how we progressed uh, in this 18 months. So I have a couple of questions around the platform. Did you develop it from scratch or did you kind of white label different products and kind of mix it together in the way that you thought would, would work the best? I would say the majority is built from scratch. And I would say 80% of it, it's, uh, so, you know, code being written. Uh, of course, we, we have some, I would say, external add-ons. Registration system is still our own, old registration system that we use for the in-person events. But for streaming services, we, we took, a, you know, a streaming, a external streaming service. And that's another example that we're now developing in-house our own streamer, let's say. Um, that we actually started testing in some of the recent events and obviously we're going to uh, introduce it in a couple of weeks. So yeah, but I would say about 80% was everything from scratch and then we, we, we like the, the matchmaking solution that we've taken for with as an add-on uh, with the vision of being 100% independent.
Okay. And so what was the main driver to, to building that? Was it the independence? Were you kind of missing features? You know, were you sort of having to use multiple platforms to get the features that you wanted? Because I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but mainly kind of academic and scientific conferences, that is your world, right? So you have poster sessions, uh, you have poster reviews, you have lots of different sort of types of sessions that are maybe not always available uh, or not easy to kind of replicate in a virtual world, right? Was that a driver as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, as you mentioned, about 80% of our businesses is medical, scientific, life science, medical associations. We do also corporate. We did some uh, events for Rolls-Royce and, and so forth. But yeah, the majority is, and they are very unique, as you mentioned. They have specific needs and specific sessions. And also the scientific program management they're using is, is um, oh, the way we built it is fully integrated with a single sign-on and, and, and an API that gives you a, you know, a, a seamless experience. So um, that, that's one thing. So that's obviously one of the reasons because we know that it's not a typical event. It's not a typical corporate event. It's not a product launch. So it's, it's an association medical life science event. Um, so that's one reason. The second reason, of course, um, it's at least at the beginning, you know that, that there, there weren't met so many platform others. And, and we were one of the 8,000 clients that wanted to reach out to one of the well-established virtual platform. And uh, we felt that when it comes to service. And uh, you know, we wanted to make sure that we, we provide uh, a good service to our clients. Um, and, and that's, let's say, that the second reason. Um, and the third reason, as I mentioned, we, we saw it's, it's, it's not going to, you know, it's not going to end up into three months and COVID will just disappear. We, we understood that this, this is an opportunity for us um, to develop, to accelerate our digital services uh, for the long term. Because, you know, we'll speak maybe about the future later on, but, uh, you know, virtual is, is here to stay in a way. So you better have a good solution in-house. And, and, and maybe the fourth reason is that it allows you to better uh, cater to your clients because we have big clients with different needs and we are much more flexible and adaptable in a way that, you know, we sit with our IT director saying, you know, this client wants this, you know, feature a little bit different. All right, let's do it. If you, if you are dependent on a third party that, you know, is very, it's not going to be flexible to each client needs, right? You have a product. This is a, you know, this is what you have on your shelf. This is what you can take. This is the limitation of what you can, you know, brand and so forth. Um, and and uh, it allows us also to really uh, rebrand differently every platform. So if 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 a conference is was planned to be in Toronto. We can look as you know. You enter the Toronto MTCC or the background will be the skyline of Toronto, and and gives you you know the feel that you are actually uh, at the venue that was you know originally was supposed to uh, the meeting should have been. Um, yeah, those, so those are the main reasons I would say. And do you? I mean, I'd love to also talk about the challenges, right? I mean, creating your own tool must have challenges associated with it. Um, are you able to share any of those that, that you think maybe surprised you or maybe some of the challenges that you weren't expecting in, in kind of having your own tool? Yeah, I mean, it's not only about the tools, it's about the skills of people. Uh, I mean, the, the first surprise when we, you know, back then in April, when we shifted the, the, the first meeting, 
the first surprise about uh, you know the simple reporting process with the speaker. You know, again, uh, most of our speakers are doctors, professors, researchers. Uh, didn't have a lot of experience with with Zoom or recording. And we we thought at the beginning, all right, we're going to send them a Zoom link. They're just going to record themselves, and everything will be fine. And of course, it didn't happen. And we know that today, every you know, now everybody realized that. And we figure out very quickly that we need to walk them hand in hand. So uh, we we have uh, have a I think a team of about twenty people that are just recording uh, speakers. So it started with people in house that we shifted people from other um professions from other teams so if you had you know people doing hotel sales or hotel operation of course there's no hotels to sell at that point let's 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 train them how to uh, uh you know record speakers or we have people from from you know venue procurement uh, or, or you know people and so and, and at a certain point uh we uh we had this a uh, huge group of people that recording people. Now we it's a mix between in-house and, and and you know uh, freelancers that work with us on recording speakers. So that was you know a big surprise on one hand. And the other one is of course uh, you know the need of everybody in the industry to understand more about um, the uh, world of video production because we in order to ensure that uh, people has the, you know the maximum experience uh, for the participant in the virtual events, we realized that we. We need to ha make sure that those virtual events look more like a TV show, more like a, a, a TV production. And this was skills that we obviously didn't have in-house. So we brought, we actually recorded some people with background in production, in TV production, in content editing, uh, or content creation. Um, and of course, we, we trained our people to be more minded for that. Uh, uh, of course, we, we have our own meeting design people and meeting architect in-house, but it's a little bit different when it comes to in-person versus virtual. So this is something we need to train the team, even for the people who are dealing with the scientific committee. So we have a, a scientific program coordinator that, that is the point of contact to the scientific committee. He or she will have to help them navigate them and explain how to think differently about the session and the session format and session types and even the, the, the basic of the, of the program building, okay, how much break do you need between session? Again, it's very different what you experience on site. So that, that uh, I don't know if it's a surprise, but it definitely was something that we need to work on, train the people, upskill them, and we still do that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So in, in terms of the, you know, you mentioned recordings um, and, and uh, you know, what percentage would you say are sort of pre-records from from of, of the work that you do in, in scientific and academic conferences? I would say that uh, well, it depends from Congress to Congress, but uh, I would say that about eighty percent is pre-recorded, but mm -hmm. always have a live element. So the presentation are usually pre-recorded, and then the speakers join for a live Q and A. I would say that's the majority of what we've seen so far. Usually, the main big session, the most important one, the opening, the closing are live, the, some of the, you know, the keynote plenary speakers could be live, but then the, the rest of the content is pre-recorded with, with the live element. I think it's very important for, for being a live element because, again, if you look back at the beginning, one of our first virtual events, the client insisted to record everything, almost no live element. And although we insisted saying, you know, that is not what the delegates are looking for, 
They say, we don't want to take any risks. It's the what's their first experience in virtual meeting. And when the meeting opened up, and of course we, we provide them, you know, an online chat support uh, to the delegates or any technical need or any questions. And, and the comments we got from people, you know, I didn't sign up for a YouTube channel uh, for this event, right? They, they want this live interactivity element in it. Um, and uh, of course, they, you know, this client already is doing his, his second virtual event this November, and I think the problem will look completely different. <laughs> really interesting. Yeah, I, I think, you know, from our research, what keeps coming up is engagement is continues to be challenging uh, in virtual events um, and also monetizing virtual events, you know, because you have sponsors, uh, mainly sponsorship seems to be the, the main source of monetization. Um, I think a lot of academic and scientific conferences do charge, but it's a it's not the equivalent fee. It's not the same kind of business model. Um, any thoughts on the business model side? And I think there's two, kind of two sides to that question. Is one is you know your monetization, Kenneth, as as a business. How did you you know kind of make that work for you? But also, how did you help your clients monetize their events? Now I'm going to connect all the dots of what we start speaking about marketing. Uh, it, I think that marketing has shifted in the virtual, still is in the beginning, to educating the market. Again, one of our, our you know, challenges in, in marketing is, is, of course, convincing you, right, to choose the brand. But at a certain point, especially in virtual events, it, 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 it shifted to educate the market. And when I say educate the market, educate the delegates, very simple, you know, how do I experience virtual events from, from you know, how to use a virtual platform and how to engage with people, but also to sponsors. And we, we I think we invested a lot of time in educating and working with our sponsors and exhibitors how to get the most out of virtual events. And I think that the, the, the challenge for the sponsor and exhibitors because, and we saw it also from our survey that we did last year and this year, and we, and we saw a shift one of the challenges we saw at the beginning is that exhibitors or sponsored um, still used to measure success in the old way. So for them, number of visits to the virtual booth uh, was the, main, the, the, the way they measured success, which I believe it's wrong because in the virtual world, of course, yeah, it's, it's, it's very important, right? You wanna have people in, in your virtual booth, but what's more important is that you wanna work on the brand awareness on making sure that you, you reach at the, the top of mind of the virtual conference delegate. And you do that by education. You know, they do a lot of satellite symposia. So invest in this is so, again something we saw from the survey. That's is what the delegates are looking from sponsors. And uh, they want to meet their experts. You want to speak with them. It's less about you know seeing a uh, a PDF brochure in, in, in the virtual lobby. So we invested a lot of time in educating and working with our exhibitors and sponsors to ensure that they uh, feel, I would say, some of return on investment. And, and, and yes, we, we saw that they, you know, they still support the event. Of course, it's not in the same levels of an in-person meeting, but are still high, you know, uh, but also the expenses are different for them and for, for the uh, organizers. And so the support remained strong enough to ensure that our association uh, are still, you know, um, saw a really good profit line from the, to their event. So, I, I mean, and I didn't see the monetizing 
as a big issue thus far, at least for our clients. Cool. Um, and do you, I mean, thinking to the future, we're hopefully seeing events opening up, or at least the opportunity for in-person events. Um, if if for any reason we can't do live events, I mean, do you see there being a a, a solid business model there? Do you see it able to continue uh, in in a virtual setting? Um, I mean, we are in the people people business, right? Mm -hmm. I don't see any reason why we won't go back to an in-person element. And I say element because it will be part of a holistic solution. Uh, I mentioned, we all know that virtual is here to stay and you know, hybrid is a big buzzword. And, but I very, you know, I had experienced my first in-person event in July, which was a year and a half, almost after I had been in an in, in-person event. And I was so happy. I mean, to see a speaker standing on stage and to interact with him after in the break, it's priceless. It cannot be replaced in a virtual uh, uh, experience. So that means that the future objective of an in-person meeting will be made maybe a little bit different. It will be focused more on you know, the networking, the building the community, hands-on, especially for, for our medical events, they need a lot of hands-on uh, workshops and sessions, and that is not, you know, it's difficult to replace in the virtual settings. And uh, so that more socializing, but content and education can be, still be consumed online. I think a lot of associations realize that. And if, you know, years ago, we, we spoke about, about, you know, doing some sort of e-learning platform and making sure that the education is available also online. And they, they looked at us and say, why do I need it? Now everybody realized, again, association realized, okay, we can educate our members, our, our doctors, our researchers through online content. So we're going to see a mix. We're going to see, um, you know, a lot of people say 365. Yeah, or maybe kind of 365 um, um, learning that will be combined with in-person and virtual events uh, throughout the year. Okay. I think that's that's a, a vision, a pretty solid vision for the future. And and you're confident that the business models around this can work. That they're, you know, because to be to be direct, I think a lot of companies, and I don't know if this is the case with Kenneth, rely on commissions, rely on hospitality commissions, hotel commissions, venue commissions as a big part of their revenue. And without that, without the kind of in-person or with a smaller in-person um uh, revenue uh, that could be challenging for many companies. How do you see that unfolding? You know, of course, if if I if if the company of the you know uh, the founder of Kenneth, if he knew that this is will be the reality, maybe the company have been built differently, right? But this is you know, but this we need to uh, manage what we have, um, and I think that um, yes, it's true that we we cannot rely more you know on, on hotels profits from you know selling hotel or no although we, we will never build on, on commissions uh it is true that the uh, accommodation services was a, as a, a you know a big percentage out of the of all the pcos revenues um i think we have we were able to replace it also by owning our own virtual platform which is replacing the venue so we now 
not only offering the organizational service, we also have the venue for us, the virtual venue, I would say, but it's another stream of, of, of um, obviously another source of income and revenue for us. Um, yes, we need to work leaner in a way, but also, uh, you know, we, we work with less provide other, you know, third-party providers, you know, the, the, the management of the virtual event, it's, it's quite different. You need more IT people, people versus, I would say, other team members. And it can be viable. It can be viable for us and for the clients. However, the, uh, you know, if you look at the short term, um, let's say 2022, when it's, the uncertainty between, okay, are we gonna really have an in-person meeting? Is it gonna be a hybrid meeting? It's gonna be only virtual. This is where I see the risk. You know, we need to manage this risk, especially when you need to contract a venue or you don't need to contract a venue. Are you booking hotels or not? Um, that, that, that is something we, we have to be very careful with because that could put everybody in risk, us and the client and the, the association. Um, I think for the long term, uh, it would be much more clear, and then uh, we can manage, um, you know, the, the revenue stream in a more smarter way. Are you ready to celebrate your successes in the world of meetings and events? The Skift Meetings Awards are back for 2024, recognizing the most innovative business events companies across 15 categories, and we want you to be a part of it. Winners will feature on Skift Meetings, sending a clear signal to events professionals around the world that these are partners they can rely on. The final deadline for submissions is June 11th. We encourage you to start your submission today to secure the best entry rates. For more information and to start your submission, head to live.skift.com. So I'd like to touch on this this kind of period, this, these different periods, and I think we're all uh, you know hopeful that soon we have an option to meet in person if we want, put virtual, create hybrid, whatever we want to do. But at the moment, we're in this period that I kind of anecdotally call unpivot, which is kind of coming out of a, a virtual pivot in a way. Uh, and I saw a press release recently that you put out about a few events that you did very successfully, and I noticed that there was a sort of a, an, an allusion to a backup plan uh, of how to make an event happen. And I, and I talked with, with Magdalena, one of your colleagues, um, about it. And she explained the plans that you had to put in place to have this event happen in the US, where a European-based team, I think Spain-based team, was, was managing mm -hmm. it. Could you kind of explain what happened and, and how that all unfolded? Yes, I mean, we, we, we did conduct uh, two in-person events, full in-person events, uh, uh, the, you know, this September. And uh, we're still having in plans a few more in-person events in coming December. So, you know, but I, I, I would want to start saying the team was excited, super excited to be on site. For them, it was like riding a bicycle. I mean, they, they, they were so excited to see the clients face to face after not seeing them for almost two years to, um, you know, um, cater the, the delegates, um, the speakers and everything like we used to do once and, and everybody was very excited about this. However, of course, we didn't know if it's gonna happen until last minute. And uh, with, with travel restrictions, uh, we have a team coming from, you know, 
different places worldwide. So we have Tipica from Amsterdam, from, from Bulgaria, from Spain, from Israel, and so forth. And every country has a different limitation. Can we access the conference? One of them was in Paris, one of the US. Can we really access? And the you know, regulations are changing by the minute. So what do you do if this and this person can have access or you have to go to quarantine? How do you replace? Do you take local stuff? How do you train the local stuff? Uh, what happens if a, a speaker will not be able to attend? All those plan B, C, and uh, you know, we've, we've given a lot of thought. We actually did a pre-recording for all the speakers because we didn't know if they will come or not, if they were able to attend or not until the last minute. Um, and so, yeah, we, we've invested a lot of that, although everybody was super excited of coming and seeing an in-person event. Um, it's, it's not easy to operate with, with all the restriction. Uh, do we need a PCR test before you enter the venue? Yes or no. Do you need to show vaccination proof? Yes or no. What are the local regulations? Uh, what are the airlines regulations? Uh, it's quite complex. Unfortunately, I think uh, this is where I and will definitely do it through IAPCO as well. We'll call government to streamline uh, all the regulations. So I'm all in favor of you know restriction that makes sense. But as long as everybody is the same. So uh, for example, within even within the huge region like the EU, okay, if you want to access the country, you need to show PCR you know negative PCR test and a vaccination, right? That's fine. But Make sure that all countries has the same regulation because I, 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 I came back last week from, from Geneva and the fact that I'm fully vaccinated was fine for me to enter. But a month ago, which was I was already fully vaccinated, I was in, I was in Lausanne, which is still Switzerland, and I had to show a PCR negative test. So it's, it's quite confusing, it's quite complex. Um, and I hope that you know it's at least this part will be streamlined to something that is more. I don't mind being strict, but as long as we all unified in that sense. Sure, and I think that the U.S. with the news of uh, you know opening up uh, is, is great news, but we're still a little uncertain of of when and exactly how that's going to work, right? So, hopefully, that can be unified. Uh, I don't know if you have any other events happening in the U.S., but but I hear that some uh, conferences and some events are placing their staff in, in, in countries like Canada and other countries so that they can stay there for the quarantine period and then travel to the US. Is that something that you have in place for any of your events or are you looking at kind of actions like that? Uh, um, to be honest, I don't expect any of my, uh, my team members, my staff to, be, to for force them in a way to be quarantined for 14 days. If they have to be quarantined either, either when coming back or traveling, I will find somebody else because I don't think it's fair for people to uh, be quarantined for unless they are willing to and want to uh, for 10 or 14 days just to open an uh, operated event. And this again, uh, the, the example we mentioned in the US, we brought people from Mexico, from our team in Mexico, but for, for them it was easier to access the US to operate the team than from people from Spain because of all the, you know, the restriction entering the US right now. So I would rather find solution that will not force people to quarantine. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a very valid comment and we're hoping to streamline these solutions very, very quickly, uh, which would be great. Um, so we talked a little bit already about the future of the industry and you've already talked about you know, some of the challenges. Um, I wanted to get your kind of thoughts on, on hybrid, uh, you know, what that means for you and, and 
is it the future? Do you, do you see it being part of, of lots of events? Uh, and then there's a few other kind of future trends that I'd like to pick on, but let's start with hybrid. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, the, I'm a person who thinks that hybrid is a little bit of an overbuzzed word, uh, you know, word. And um, for me, it's just finding the right solution for the right uh, association or the right event. We have um, invested a lot, a, a lot of time and effort already months ago about um, trying to find the best hybrid scenario because we all know this this hybrid pauses, you know, brings a lot of challenges. Many, especially financially, for us and for the clients and for the association, because we all understand you have double expenses, you have less income. You know, simple math, right? Um, so, what is the best solution i would say that will able to still facilitate this need for connect you know people you know facilitating people in person and virtual in a way that will make financial sense that it will make sense also when it comes to the delegates experience and we have this task force that we've done in here in-house that worked for weeks and weeks because there's also have implications on the way that the operation team work do we need to double the team and so forth and we came up more or less with with three models uh, that will make sense. Um, and I, I'll give the high level without going into too much detail. So the first one is what I call hybrid tool. It's actually a disconnected model because it's an in-person event and a virtual event, not on the same days. So for example, you have an in-person event for, I don't know, two and a half days, you're probably gonna have less people than you use, you know, the association is used to. Uh, you get that, so you make this program smaller, the length of the program is shorter, but you put a lot of emphasis on the experience of the people enjoying the fact that they are there, they get you know, all the social part, the networking part, the hands-on uh, experience, and, of, and you take the opportunity and capture the content. Two, three, four, seven days afterwards, you launch the virtual events. For those who couldn't participate on-site, use the content you captured uh, during the in-person events, plus uh, some live elements, plus additional content, and you create a virtual event. So there's two separate events uh, with under, let's say, one booth. That, that's, I would call disconnected model, and it's, and let's say, the, the less riskier model than all of them. The second model, which I call a hybrid top, is, or we call it also 50-50. What happened when 50% of the delegates are there in person and 50%, more or less, yeah. Are, are virtual. Here, very similar, it is a, an event that happening on the, the, uh, the same days. It's not a disconnected model, but we cut 50% of the content that is happening on site. So for example, if you had, you're supposed to be, the conference had 10 parallel rooms, 10 parallel sessions every day. You cut them in half, you do only five in person and the rest of the five are, are only a, a recorded or only streamed on the virtual platform. And then you, again, shorten a little bit the, the days of the events, same elements of you know, putting a lot of um, emphasis on the experience of the in-person uh, of those delegates who are coming on site. And then the, uh, those who join virtually enjoy, of course, the all, all, all the content, but the cost is reduced by you know, uh, reducing the space, reducing the, the in-person program. And so just to be clear, you're saying reduce the content for everybody or do the online audience get 
the f more content than the on-site. Those, those who come on-site get obviously access to the virtual platform. So in any case, they, they have access to the entire program afterwards. But you know, before the virtual world, when I come to an in-person meeting, I can choose only one session hall that I can access at the same time, right? So that that yeah. that is the same experience happening to tomorrow, but I will have access to the virtual public and will have all the 10 parallels, all the content. But I actually reduce the expenses by having only half of it happening on site and half of it mm -hmm. happening online. I hope okay. it makes sense. And, and, and the third model is, I would say, well, uh, we call it hybrid max. It's the most close one to format to the in-person meeting when you have at least 80% of your delegates on site and 20% online. Uh, then of course it's a regular meeting. You stream all the uh, content like what a hybrid usually meant in the past. I, I just want to say about the engagement and the in, you know in the interactivity going on between the audiences. I, I'm a person who thinks that we don't need to force this engagement between the different audiences because the, the person sitting at home with his pajamas watching a session on his computer or in, you know, in TV in the living room, um, I don't think he's looking to interact and engage with a person who sits in a session hall, uh, in a session hall, you know, sitting in, and seeing the speaker because the person is sitting in a session hall want to interact with the person sitting next to him and not with the person sitting at home. Um, so I'm against, I'm sorry, against maybe it's a harsh word, but I don't think we need to force this uh, interactivity between the audience. We need to ensure that each audience has its own networking opportunities. And that's obviously has an implication on how we need to operate this virtual, oh, sorry, hybrid event. I think that's very fair. I think. Um... Yeah, I've I I have the same. We we've done some research about this, uh, and actually, it comes out at around seventy or eighty percent, between seventy and eighty percent, think that there is a need to engage between the audiences. Um, I have to say that I, I I'm more on your camp. Um, I think that, particularly the on-site audience, I think creating situations where you're asking an on-site audience member to engage with somebody who's online. There has to be a really, really compelling reason for that to happen. You know, it has to be like a, a VIP speaker that you really want to meet or someone that you really want to meet. And that's okay if you do. Um, but it does feel strange to kind of force people on site to connect with people online because it's, you know, there's so much of that human engagement factor. You know, and we've done also a few surveys and we saw that, you know, what the end of the day, what's important for delegate, especially in our world that it's you know more medical life science, is the content, right? The content is still the king. They want they come to be educated, to learn, to get you know mm -hmm. gain the CME accreditation. It's less about uh, the networking. So if we look at the priority of uh, why to attend the virtual meeting, networking will be one of the um, the I, I would believe it's four or five place. Uh, you know, okay. after education about meeting the experts and, and, and the accreditation and the network comes in the end. It might be different from um, a trade exhibition or, or, sh or shows like IMAX. Uh, there it's probably very different, but for an, uh, an education event, the networking part is important, but less. Mm. 
I think that's fascinating because I hear other people doing, you know, other types of events, as you say, uh, where networking comes up, I think, top or maybe second. Uh, it becomes a really important part, particularly for the on-site experience. Um, but I, I can see why it would be different in an academic and scientific context. Um, what about, you know, I'm not necessarily trying to put you on the spot, but what about this idea of passive learning, right? Because I agree, we don't necessarily want to force people to do that. And people want to kind of access the content and watch it as, the, you know, whenever they want. Uh, and there may be reasons why they want their CMEs, etc. And they just want to have access and get those credits. But, you know, learning and teaching all these kind of methodologies that, that we have access to kind of show us that if we're passively just listening, we're not really learning uh, or we're not learning as much as if we're engaging with the content and if there's sort of some sort of interaction. Um, is that just not the responsibility of us as planners, like just let people do whatever they want? Or should we be actively engaging or getting speakers and event owners to, to create engagement around content? Because I agree, you know, content is great, but if it just becomes a YouTube channel, like you said about your first conference, then we're probably not doing a great service to that association or to the to the members of that association. Uh, I 100% agree with you. I think that it's our role and our responsibility to support and help our clients, ensuring that this education, that the, 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 the other side that need to consume this knowledge and education, uh, do it in a way uh, that, that will show what we call return on, on, on education. And, and uh, absolutely, they, they are looking for this interactivity and engagement. And this is the reason why we are investing a lot in virtual studios, in a TV production style of sessions uh, with, uh, with our video, with our content editor, because we didn't have a content editor in the past for a scientific meeting. But of course now we need because we understand that um, you can't be passive as you mentioned, if, or at least for the virtual meeting or whatever we're going to be hybrid meeting in the future, it has to be interactive. It has to be engaging because this is how you keep people on board with you. And you know, you know, you, you, you know we all speak about attention span of people uh, viewing and how it's dropped. And now with a simple polling. And ask the speaker questions and different tricks that we do in the session. You you raise the attention again, and it drops, and you raise it again, and it drops, and you raise it again. And uh, I I fully agree. This is our role as organizer to ensure that those events uh, or those sessions are are stream are broadcasted in, in the best way that the other side can consume it. Uh, and and will acknowledge it and will come back as as uh, you know. Uh, retaining this as a, as a potential future delegate for this conference. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and going kind of expanding on that a little bit, what, what about the on-demand content? Um, I think event organizers are sort of being asked to, to create, you know, like mini Netflix or kind of YouTube collections of content. Um, is that something that we're kind of qualified to do? Uh, and, and how do we kind of do that well? Um, that the quick answer is yes. I think that there is a, there was first of all there's a need for that. So if we spoke on on the previously on the element of the live session and the, the fact that it has to be interactive and engagement, uh, and in addition you need to offer also the 
passive VOD style of, of uh, watching because people want to catch up whatever they didn't see live or they have spare time or they, you know, sit on the train to work and they can uh, you know, catch a session. It's, it's very important. So we obviously record all the content. All the content is available as a VOD, usually about three months after the event to all the delegates. People are still buying um, the content, but it has to turn in, into kind of a, E-learning is, uh, I don't like the, the, the modeling, but kind of a online education that's happening for, for the members of the association or for the community members. We haven't spoken about community, but it's definitely one of the uh, future formats that we're probably going to speak about. And, and um, the way uh, that you need to offer this content is by uh, um, ensuring that every session is recommended the right person so we speak about you know the netflix model the ai model of how do you recommend a session to a person that's a lot of work need to be ensured that you're, you're tagging the, the session right you have the profiling right and you match the content to a person uh, this is something we're working on this is probably going to be the future of of how do you consume those recordings and then uh, it will become more efficient so is that something that you're working on with your own tools so that you can provide that to clients, not only the event, but then a, a library and a place where attendees, can, the community can go back to and, and kind of keep engaged? Absolutely working on it. Um, so it's, it's, I would say it's now semi-manual with completely automated in the future. Um, but absolutely, I think that, that, that that's the future of, of content um, uh, consuming, I would say. It does make sense because we're creating so much content from events, then we also need to be experts at what do we do with that content afterwards if we just, you know, if it just ends up on a shelf or a virtual shelf, but nobody actually watches it, then it's a bit of a waste for everybody involved. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's too much content out there right now. I mean, this is one of the outcome of this whole virtual world. So yeah, we need to ensure that uh, we offer our delegates the right content for them. So it's a, it's a discovery uh, element, but also a, I think it's also a speed element and tell me if I'm wrong, but if you leave a content for too long before editing it and making it kind of watchable, it's not as exciting, right? People aren't as interested in it, particularly in a, in a scientific and academic sense, you want to have the latest information, right? So it's important to be able to do that at a reasonable speed so that, you know, you keep that momentum from the event and then the content becomes relevant at the right time. And yeah, I agree. And also what we've done is that we invested in a, in a, in a player that not only you see the recorded session, but it has OCR elements that allows you, it has all the captioning, all the slides. You can easily, you can search by uh, texting a slide. You can easily jump through a specific slide and it, you know, it, it will take you to the right place. And, and uh, of course that, you know, voice to text. And so you see, um, it's sometimes easier to consume when you also see kind of a subtitles or captioning of the text. And so the way you capture is not only just sitting and viewing, but it gives you a whole experience of slide, text, the ability also to run it faster uh, or slower if you need to go back, if you, you know, didn't catch it properly. Um, so we have more and more tools to enable a better um, content consumption.
it sounds like the, the role of the event professional keeps getting more and more complex and there's more yes. layers to it. Yes. So I wanted to kind of end with, with, with a few uh, a little bit more uh, general questions. And one is, you know, we've seen a lot of people leave the industry, unfortunately, um, and there are young people hopefully joining the industry. Do you have any advice for, for those younger people joining the industry or people who've left and, and are maybe considering coming back? What would you say to them? Um, hopefully to convince them to come to the industry, but maybe you don't want to come to the industry. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, first of all, I, I, it's, it's a global challenge right now to recruit people. I see it and I, I speak to a lot of people within our industry. And, you know, we're kind of mapped as an industry in risk in a way. Um, so first of all, we need to ensure that governments are still supporting and giving some sort of a safety net to the meeting industry, especially those who work on a local level, uh, maybe less, less on the international level, but we have a lot of uh, PCO that the majority of the work comes from the local uh, market. And we, again, if, if the governments can at least uh, offer some sort of a safety net for them, that will be very important. But this is an amazing industry that has accelerated, I think, you know, maybe beside food delivery, the fastest in this uh, pandemic than any other industry. And uh, it's, it's super exciting. And uh, the, the combination in the future between what we have spoken all this the last uh, hour about the in-person, the virtual, the technology, um, uh, and it's, you know, this combination is fascinating. It's truly globally, even if, if it's only virtually. Um, so I'm, I'm obviously hooked, I'm excited. I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, I, every, every, uh, everyone who is considering to um, come to the uh, meaning industry, I highly recommend. Perfect, always good to hear. And the last question that I like to ask all our guests, uh, I'd love to get a recommendation from you uh, for someone else that we should have as a guest on the Event Manager podcast. Um, I, it's a, he's a TED, ex-TED speaker. His name is Leot Soref. He, uh, uh, I don't know, he has a famous TED talk that he brought a bull on stage because he showed how accurate his crowdsourcing. And he wrote a book about uh, how you make decisions by crowdsourcing. Um, um, we, we, uh, we know, I know him very well. He's, he's an Israeli like me. Uh, very fascinating. He's a, he's a professional speaker. He speaks at a lot of events. He knows the meeting industry. So highly recommend I can connect you both together. That sounds great. I, I need to go search for this TED Talk now with a bull on stage. I, I yeah. don't think I've seen that one. So I need to go and check that out. Ori, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for being our guest. It's been fascinating talking to you. I took lots of notes. So we're going to add those to the podcast notes. Um, just want to appreciate um, Thank you for your time. And uh, if you're listening to the podcast, make sure you subscribe, rate, review the podcast. We'd love to have you on next week again. Again, thank you, Ari. You, it's been a pleasure uh, speaking with you. Thank you, Miguel. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Event Manager Podcast. Please subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. For the latest news and the best articles on technology and innovation in the event industry, head over to eventmb.com.